It wasn't what they expected. It felt like winning the lottery, but then being crushed by everything that followed. Was it actually worth it? Wouldn't it be better to return to the quiet and familiar routines that they'd once known? After all, they were faithful Jews. They'd grown up loving the temple, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the ornate clothes, the elaborate ceremonies, that sense of history and significance. And then, in coming to realize that Jesus from Nazareth, the crucified carpenter, was actually the Messiah that their nation had anticipated. Well, that was a remarkable privilege that they knew. Surely now, their own situation would just grow in blessing. Surely now, God would vindicate their cause. Surely now, the whole nation would realize their mistake and would come to worship their resurrected leader. But that's not how it was working out. And they didn't know why. It wasn't what they expected. And to compound matters, the opposition was growing. Their national leaders encouraged the persecution and torture of those from the Jesus community. They were being insulted. They were being called traitors. Some of them were being imprisoned. Others were having their property confiscated. They were being thrown out of their synagogues. They were being excluded from the temple. Was it really worth it? Had they got it right? Or should they go back to the old, comfortable, familiar ways? 2,000 years later, there's someone sitting in Charlotte Chapel. Maybe they're here because, well, that's what they've always done. Maybe they're here because they've recently started to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe they're here because they are a visitor. It is their first time into this building, but they are a follower of Christ. But... What unites each of them is there's a debate raging in their head and troubling their hearts. You see, this Christian life is just getting too tough. They thought that following Jesus would be an end to all their problems, but instead it feels actually that things have only got worse. The opposition at work is growing. People just assume they're a brain-dead bigot or a right-wing homophobe, and they won't even listen. Temptations to cheat on their partner or temptations to cheat on their expenses seem to grow daily. It just seems such hard work. Maybe it's time to give up on it all. Maybe it's time to kick over the traces. Time to follow the path of least resistance. Time to say to Jesus, thank you, but no thank you. You see, 
People think that the reality of suffering presents the greatest obstacle for faith in God. Could I say this? Actually, the reality of suffering creates a far bigger problem for the Christian than it does for the unbeliever. You see, for the unbeliever, the question of suffering is purely philosophical. They don't actually believe there is a God, so the question of suffering in the world is just a philosophical argument against Christianity. But for the believer, the question of suffering is more than philosophical. It's intensely personal. They know there's a God. They know he is loving and wise and sovereign and powerful. And yet, they experience such heartache and pain and loss and failure and tears. And maybe you are among them this morning. You see, that's the problem. That's what can be so hard to reconcile. That's what tests their faith like nothing else. And that's what was troubling the Hebrew believers. And that's what's troubling some believers here in Charlotte Chapel. If God is who we are told he is, then why are we faced with so many difficulties and so much pain? Why doesn't he intervene? Is it really worth it? Well, it's for people like us, because actually we've all been there, that this letter to the Hebrew Christians was written. And in the course of the first 11 chapters during this series, we've seen how Jesus Christ is immeasurably superior to all the old ways. They're just the shadow to his substance. They're just the pointers to his reality. And as we've seen recently in this series, the writer goes on to describe how the great heroes of faith, they weren't immune to the troubles that were uh, bothering his readers. It's as if the writer anticipates the question, why does hard stuff happen to God's children? And in chapter 12, the passage we're looking at this morning, he makes a number of points to help and encourage us. The first point is this. He talks about the common experience. The common experience. For as we've just noted, there's a context to these verses, and it's to do with the suffering of some great believers from the past. Uh, Let me remind you of these verses. You've looked at them before. They're in verses 36 to 38 of chapter 11. Some faced jeers and flogging, And even chains and imprisonment, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destituted, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. But it wasn't just these greats who endured such suffering. The writer goes on to speak of Jesus himself and what He went through, you looked at this last week, uh, verses 2 to 3, we read this. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Look, friends, we can scarcely get our heads around what it cost Jesus to die in the place of sinners. The mocking, the abuse, the physical agony, the terrible shame, the weight of infinite wrath, the hell of separation. And then the writer begins to focus down upon the Hebrew Christians themselves. They're going through trials. And as a result, they're beginning to grow weary and lose heart, as we're told in verse 3. Their arms are growing feeble. Their knees are growing weak, as we're told in verses 12 to 13. Perhaps like some of us here. But by placing their suffering alongside the suffering of Old Testament saints and supremely alongside Jesus Christ, it's as if the writer is saying to them, look, this stuff happens. There's pain. There's pressure. And that's normal. You see, he talks about the hostile opposition that Jesus faced from his opponents, verse 3. And and, and some of you know about that. He talks about struggling against sin, verse 4. And some of you, if not all of us, know about that. He talks about the veiled threats of suffering yet to come there in verse 4. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And some of you anticipate that. So, my friend, as your heart breaks on the inside, as troubles rip you apart, as fears grip your imagination, please, please remember that you are not alone. That this is the common experience of all God's children. Anyone who promised you that the Christian life was an untroubled stroll through to glory was a liar. My friends, this is how it is. But we mustn't leave it there. I mustn't just say, okay, let's have the final hymn and, and, and we'll close. Because I'll have a whole bunch of you just going out the church and, and people will say, you know, what have you heard from the preacher? And the preacher's just said, oh, this is life for us. It's going to be a trouble and it's going to be a trial and it's going to be a painful. No, 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 no. Look, the writer doesn't leave it there, so neither must we. But we recognize that it is the common experience. If you are suffering, if your heart is breaking, maybe with issues that you have never shared with anyone here in this church or even in your family, my friends, that's the way of the Christian life. But, but let's move on as the writer does because I want to introduce us secondly to the surprising source. The surprising source. Where does this suffering come from? Why does it happen? Now in one sense, we've already had an answer to that. It comes from opponents. You see, it was opponents who insulted and persecuted them, who confiscated their property and threw them into jail. We read about that in chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. It was opponents who tortured and flogged and imprisoned and put in chains and killed with swords and sores those saints who are are listed at the end of chapter 11. It was opponents who opposed and crucified Christ. And it was the opposition of their own sinful hearts as well that caused them to struggle. 
But my friends, that's not the main answer. It's as if the writer has almost put them in just as incidentals. Instead, he tells them the ultimate source of all their opposition and struggles and troubles is to be found elsewhere. And he quotes a couple of verses from Proverbs. It's there in verses 5 to 6. Where he says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. You see, here's the climax of the writer's argument. Here is the stunning summary reason for why God's people go through trouble and trial. It's God at work. Not primarily the opponents and persecutors, But it is God. Now this may be so shocking and painful for some of you here that already you're beginning to close your mind down. Can't take that. You don't want to hear it. It's not what you imagined. You just assume that Satan was in charge or man's free will was in charge and that all of these troubles came from that source But here we have the preacher pointing us to the Bible and he says it is God who ultimately is behind the trouble and the tears and the pain and the heartache that you are going through right now. Look, just just please hang on in there. There's more this passage says and more you need to hear, but you've got to realize that the Bible's great theme is this. And could I say it will be the song of heaven? We're told this. It is this, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. That's what the Bible teaches. God is in control. It's God who's in charge of all things. He determines the flight path of every sparrow and starling. Have you seen those amazing pictures of, uh, of starlings as they flock together, suddenly changing direction? They make the most incredible pattern. And the Bible says it is God who determines the flight path of every sparrow. You know, I came up here from Bristol yesterday morning on good old EasyJet to Edinburgh Airport, and no doubt that uh, flight path was, was logged and they kept an eye on the plane as it made that fairly short hop from Bristol to Edinburgh. I'm grateful for that, but, but the Bible says it is not just an individual plane, it is the flight path of every sparrow and starling and robin and insect and bee and creature because he is God. And he's in control. He controls the movements of every electron whizzing around every atom. God is the God of subatomic particles and quantum physics. He is the God who reigns. And my friend, he is the God who is in charge of all that you are going through. For he is God. My friends, by saying this, I'm not promoting one particular form of Christian teaching over another. 
I'm just telling you what's there in the text. And there's something else in the text that we need to note. Thirdly, we need to consider the realistic comfort that is in this passage. The realistic comfort. And it's this. It's actually staring at us from the text. Let me go back to verses 6 and 7. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Now, could I say, this makes all the difference. This completely reorders the way that I view the things that I'm going through. Behind it all, behind everything I'm experiencing, behind the pain, behind the tears, behind the heartache, is the work of an infinitely loving Heavenly Father. Look, it, it, this might not be the wisest thing to do in my first message at the chapel since being called to be a pastor here, to, to speak about the discipline of children in this particular present political climate. But if we're to understand God's dealing with his children, we must make clear what this discipline means. And I need to say this, it's not anger. It's not lashing out when something goes wrong. It's not hot-headed. It is completely, entirely, absolutely done out of infinite love and glorious wisdom. Can I say I'm so grateful for the way the NIV has updated the way it translates the end of verse 6. If you still have the NIV 84, I, I had that for, that was the, the Bible I used until the NIV 11 came out, but, but it changes. In the NIV 84, it says God punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Whereas the version we use, NIV 2011, uses the word chastens rather than punishes. And there's a difference. And the reason I'm grateful for this change is that punishment is associated with anger and responding to wrongdoing. And look, I have to tell you this, and this is one of the most glorious truths that you could ever hear. I want to tell you this. If you're a child of God, God is no longer angry with you. If you're a child of God, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God is no longer angry angry with you. You see, on the cross, that wrath was dealt with in Christ. He paid the price completely. There is no longer any wrath for you to fear. Rather, the believer's experience is now this. God couldn't love you more than he does now. In fact, he couldn't love you less than he does now. Right now, whatever your situation, if you are a child of God, he loves you now as much as when Jesus stretched out his arms on a cross and died there for a sinner like you. He loves you that much. My friends, that's how he regards you every moment of every day. 
And isn't that glorious? You see, I used to think that when I screwed up and failed God, in one of the very many different ways that my heart could devise, then God was then angry with me. And then I could expect bad stuff to start happening because that's what God's discipline means. So, for example, when exams were getting close, now some of you students, you probably already sat the exams. Others of you here, uh, you're just preparing uh, for them. The way I thought was this. Look, if I'm good, if I really try hard in my Christian life, uh, God won't be angry with me. He'll, he'll actually maybe reward me. So when exams came close, I thought, this is what I'll do. You know, I'll really try and make sure I'm having my quiet time every time the exams will go well. Um, and, and then when the pressure was off, you know, I was far more casual in my Christian walk. My friends, that is not how he is. If I still needed to face the anger of a righteous God, I would have no hope. But in Christ, that has been completely dealt with once and for all. I am now the constant recipient of grace. Undeserved love engulfing an unworthy, screw-up, failure sinner like me every moment of every day. And my friends, that's the ultimate context for all the hard and painful and tough things that you're going through. It doesn't mean that things are easy. It doesn't mean that I'll always be smiling. It doesn't mean that I won't keenly feel the pain. In fact, the writer makes exactly that point in verse 11, Hebrews 12, 11, No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Yeah, but painful. But the context is God's glorious, wise love. But there's something else we need to take into account. My fourth point. Is, is concerns the overarching purpose, the overarching purpose. For the truth is this, God not only loves his children more than we could ever imagine, but there is also more wise and he is also more wise and purposeful than we could ever appreciate. There is a purpose to what you are going through. It isn't blind chance, it isn't random, it isn't cruel fate. It's actually the loving hand of your heavenly Father. Have a look at uh, Hebrews 12, second part of verse 10, running into verse 11. It says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, I think the problem is we regard the word discipline so negatively. We instinctively think that discipline is us getting what we deserve. Whereas the reality is this word in the Greek has a very positive aspect to it. It's actually us getting what we don't deserve. It's a mark of mercy and love that we're not left as we were. For example, if I, I can give you a, another illustration, another Bible verse to show you how this same word, this Greek word that is translated discipline, is used elsewhere, where you see something of this more positive context. Verses we know, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. 
All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is that word training that is the same word that we have here as discipline. Training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And my friends, that's what God is lovingly and wisely doing to us through all the trials and troubles and tribulations of life. He's purposefully preparing us. He's ultimately doing us good so that we might be more like him and therefore more useful in his kingdom. Let me say again, I'm not trying to minimize your sufferings. I'm not trying to minimize what you're going through. I'm not trying to wrap them up in shiny paper when your heart is breaking and everything feels black and bleak. But I am saying, on the basis of God's word, that our loving, sovereign, heavenly Father hasn't forgotten you. There's a purpose. There's a plan. I know from deep experience that God is able to wean us off all those fake God substitutes that we go about accumulating. Sometimes in painful ways we come to realize that those things or those people or or that career or those possessions or those strategies that we devised or those relationships that we thought would thoroughly satisfy us, God, by his mercy and grace, often in the most painful ways, shows us that they won't. There may come times when all we have left to lean on is him. And some of you may be in that situation right now. There may be a woman in this congregation, I don't know, I really don't know, but maybe a woman who has miscarried over this last week and you've really desperately wanted a child. And the pain and the heartache is terrible. And all you have is God. There's some of you here, maybe you've recently had a diagnosis and it hasn't been a good diagnosis. And you're facing the next years, or in fact, you may be facing the remainder of your life. And it's hard. And it's hard. But there is a purpose as a sovereign, loving God is saying, rest in me. Rest in me. My friend, that's good. That's merciful. That's gracious. That's purposeful but I must conclude by saying this fifthly I want to talk about the glorifying response the glorifying response look there's no quick answer to the things that we're talking about there's no quick solution to the problems that we're experiencing could I say there's no immediate reason probably for the troubles you are facing Little wonder the writer adds these words there in Hebrews 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, 
It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, it describes progress later on, however. But there's also a proviso for those who have been trained by it. And the writer's great passion is that those Hebrew Christians and indeed all believers who have ever followed them since should keep going, shouldn't despair, shouldn't abandon the faith, shouldn't feel hopelessly, helplessly crushed. It was the example of the Bible heroes of old whose lives are outlined in that previous chapter. They kept going. Even when the outward circumstances seemed terrible, what did they do? They lived by faith. It's the pattern laid down by Jesus himself. Even though he faced greater troubles and more horrendous suffering than any one of us could ever imagine, he endured. He kept going. He remained on the cross knowing that it was all part of his father's plan. There was a glorious purpose in the terrible pain. And it's the application of the writer in this section. There in Hebrews 12 verse 9, he says, For we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? You see, ultimately, there's only two possible options that you face this morning. Either what you're going through is the meaningless and malevolent action of Satan and the results of this broken world, or what you're going through is ultimately from the hands of your heavenly Father who loves you with a wisdom and intensity beyond your wildest imagination. You see, I don't know why you're going through what you are. I can't give you a specific answer. I can't tell you why this. I can't tell you why now. I can't enter into the particular situation that you are facing. But I can point you to the bigger picture. The bigger hope. The bigger purpose. My friends, you can either live with hope or you live with despair. You can either live a life with a loving purpose, or you can live a life without meaning. You can either glorify God to others, as you submit to him and say, I don't understand, but by faith I trust you, Lord. Or you can focus down upon your own limited resources. My friends, you can either go out of this building looking down. Or you can go out of this building looking up. He's my father. He reigns. He's in control of my life. He knows what he's doing. And though my heart is breaking, and though I wish I wasn't going through these circumstances, I will trust him. I will live by faith. In the God who so loves me that he sent his son to be my saviour and my friend. You go out looking down. 
Or you go out looking up for your good and to his praise and glory. Let's pray. Father, these are solemn things that we've been talking about. Father, I'm so conscious that I'm preaching before a congregation where I I do not really know the hearts of those who are here. Lord, we're just very conscious that there are some here whose hearts are breaking. And we may not be aware of it, but you are. And Father, you're aware of it because actually you're behind it all. You've allowed it. You're sovereignly using it for, for good, for glory, for their growth, for them to delight in who you are, that you are sufficient. Lord, it is so easy for me to use words like this from a pulpit. Lord, it is only you by your spirit through the words who can bring comfort and peace. Would you please do that? And would you enable us as a family to support and love and help and encourage folks who are here who are struggling in this way? Thank you, sovereign God, that you reign. Help us to be still before you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to...